0: Okay, we're back. Hello and welcome back to the Lars Resort, brought to you by Betson. It is Wednesday morning, a crisp, cold, but clear and sunny morning in London. I think, for what it's worth, this is my favourite weather. Can I shock you guys? It's my favourite weather. It's a bit of frost overnight... But you know, dry, dry, just below zero this morning, but with temperatures surely creeping up during the day, clear blue skies, it's my favorite kind of weather. Cold enough that the air uh, is fresh and feels invigorating when it hits your face as you leave the house, but not so cold that you actually freeze unless you've dressed stupidly. I love it. It makes me want to take the dog out all day and explore the world, which is what I intend to do after editing this. Now, this is the second episode, of the Lars Resort after we launched last week. And and what a launch! Yeah, how about the launch? We have a round of applause for the launch. I think, I don't think I could have messed it up anymore if I'd have tried. Because listen, I figured I'd just use the feed for the old pod, right, to, to ease the passage ...for Norwegian listeners of the OG pod. Make it easy for them to migrate, to come along to the new pod. I thought that made sense. But it turns out that when you change the name and description and the artwork... ...on a podcast feed, that's not like flipping a switch. That that stuff doesn't change overnight. So after I put out the first episode... I couldn't actually promote it. I couldn't tell everyone, hey, go listen to the Lars Resort on your preferred podcast app or provider because it wasn't called that yet on iTunes or Spotify or whatever. It was a sort of slow rollout across the week as things started clicking into place. I couldn't promote it at all. And then later in the week, I I was ill. I had this thing that I think all men get occasionally, which is when you get a head cold or a cold, and it feels so bad for you like you become convinced you're going to die like your head is throbbing your airways are closing up uh, your your voice becomes you sound like what what Sean Dice would sound like if you chain smoked for 70 years and 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 you whine and complain constantly to, to your very, very patient girlfriend, your life partner of choice, uh, and, and who outwardly is supportive. She says, yeah, this this sounds really bad, I'm very sad for you. She, she brings you Lemzip, you know, she brings you the Sudafed, all this stuff, she's being very nice. But you just know, you know that on the inside she's thinking, ah, oh, you know, men, you know, for all their qualities as a gender, there are some, I guess. You guys, you cannot handle the common cold. You know that's what she's thinking. And she would be right, because I could not handle this common cold. I think I complained more over the weekend than I did during the whole sort of first couple of weeks last summer after I had uh, uh, spontaneously and abruptly disassembled my left leg. Uh, there was more whining for me this weekend. Uh, it was really bad. I, I had to take it for Tottenham City as well. Couldn't go. Dreadful. Uh, so 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 this is my, I guess, my three-step, my, my four-step guide for launching a podcast. Step one, record the thing. Record and edit it, put it online. Step two, make no effort to market it or tell anyone about it for the rest of the week. Step three, fall ill. Step four, profit, I guess. Thank you for listening to my TED Talk. So, an an inauspicious launch for the Lars Resort last week. Uh, so and, and to all of you who, in spite of my best efforts, actually found the pod and listened to it, thank you. You're, you're part of a very exclusive club. Uh, but, but finally, the technology is now working. Uh, my sinuses and airways are back under control. Uh, let's go, everyone. Episode 2, here we go. All right, another applause for the launch. Um, the soundbox is going to get old real fast, isn't it? I might I might uh, retire that already. Uh, anyway, there's been a bit of news Regarding the reigning champions of the Premier League, the team that's won the Premier League in four out of the last five seasons. They've been charged with 101 counts of breaking the Premier League rules over a nine-year period. Now, that is a a huge moment. Uh, But I'm not going to do a full episode on it right now, because this thing isn't going to get resolved anytime soon. Uh, These charges are going to be looked at now by an independent commission. Uh, The punishments can be, well, they can be literally anything. Uh, I'm kind of fascinated by this. The Premier League, rules give the commission scope to uh, to, to really just put points, deductions, transfer bans, fines, but there's also a thing in the rule that says, and I love this, it says make such other order as it thinks fit. Right. So, so you have scope in the rules to, to, to do anything to Man City really. I, I'd love to see the commission uh, decide that Man City now have to play in silly hats for the next 10 years. Right, Like a sombrero, a bowler hat, a fedora, a trapper. Yeah, so Man City playing uh, tiki-taka, wearing hats. It'd be Sean Dyche's worst nightmare. Probably unlikely to happen. Uh, There'll probably be uh, punishments uh, of some other kind. But here's the thing. Both parties can also appeal the decision of the commission. So whichever way the commission goes, you suspect one party's going to appeal. Uh, The Premier League must feel pretty confident in the evidence they have, you'd assume. And, and I know some City fans like to paint themselves as the, the brave underdogs, you know, the disruptors fighting tirelessly against the evil establishment. And you know, if that makes you happy, then, then good luck to you. But at the end of the day, uh, the Premier League are a members club, And and a typical members club does not want to pick a fight with its uh, wealthiest and most recently successful member. Like, this is going to get really messy either way. Uh, The Premier League makes its money selling TV rights around the world, and you want your brand and your product to be as attractive as possible. And it's not great for your brand saying that the most successful club this decade was actually cheating for years and years, uh, and also telling the world that, hey, we have these rules But one club broke it for like a decade and we weren't able to do anything about it until now also not great. So it's it's a big step for them to take. I suspect it would have been much more comfortable to to just find a way of making it go away. Um, And it would be a disastrous step for them to take if they lose. So they must have some confidence in their evidence here now. City, of course, on the other hand, say that the club welcomes the review of this matter by an independent commission to impartially consider the comprehensive body of irrefutable evidence that exists in support of its position. Uh, They also said that... That, uh, Manchester City FC is surprised by the issuing of these alleged breaches of the Premier League rules, particularly given the extensive engagement and vast amount of detailed materials that the EPL has been provided with. And in addition to this... Uh, people have sort of b- been reporting, well-connected journalist types have been connected, that privately Man City are very confident, they're very excited about a chance to clear themselves, uh, uh, rather than just get off on a technicality, as as was the case in the Court of Arbitration for Sport, uh, which the case UEFA brought uh, a while back. Now, this is all a little bit confusing to me. Um, first of all, the stuff about the extensive engagement city have have uh, engaged in I mean the situation is murky, but one of the things we do know is that City a few years back actually sued the Premier League, asking a court to block efforts to force it to turn over documents, this as per Tariq Panja of the New York Times they lost that case uh, as well as an attempt to block the publication of that judge's findings, so City went to court to try to avoid handing over documents and try to keep it secret, uh, which seems like strange behaviour, uh, when you're actually really looking forward to this all being brought to light, uh, and you, ha- you want to hand over all your evidence, because your evidence is irrefutable, uh, after all. Something doesn't quite sync up here, uh, I feel. And, and as much as uh, we tend to say that City were cleared by cast by the Court of Administration uh, for Sport, not Tony Cascarino, crucially, uh, the, 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 the court did find that City had uh, conducted an obstruction of the investigations and shown a disregard for the principle that clubs must cooperate with... With, governing, with the governing body's investigations, uh, and they were fined £9 million. So again, it has been determined by more than one authority here that City have not been entirely forthcoming in cooperating with investigations, be it the Premier Leagues or, or UEFA's, which again is strange behaviour if you've followed all the rules and, and the documents irrefutably show that this is the case. You'd think it would be in your best interest to, to help the investigators, to hand over as many documents as you as possible, to throw the documents, at them, and 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 this is kind of Ken Early's point from the very excellent Second Captains podcast. If you have irrefutable evidence that your finances are all in order, why don't you just publish them? Like you have a website, put them up there. Man city' full financial details, sources of the funding, etc, going back to two thousand and nine, because what we have now is that we have sort of snippets of information from emails that were leaked to and published by the Spiegel uh, which appear to show and that they appear to show that city were trying to disguise payments from the ownership uh, as sponsorship deals that 's what it looks like based on the emails that were leaked and are now in the public domain. We have UEFA's former chief investigator, Yves Leterme saying that, and I quote, there was a total lack of transparent flow of financial information with a battery of lawyers. They did everything they could to counter the work of our auditors. In addition, it turned out that money from sponsorship was actually paid by the owner. Like, that's what the UEFA guy is saying. And the Premier League has now charged them with all this stuff. Now, if City, as they say, have a comprehensive body of irrefutable evidence, and I'm not, I'm not disputing that, if that's what they say, I'm sure that's true, Why not cooperate with everyone? Just show people the evidence, seems weird very confusing times. Now, City, again, they're really looking forward to the commission taking a look at it. Uh, whichever way the commission lands, I suspect the other party is going to appeal, so the story is going to be with us for a good while, I suspect, and we'll have plenty of time to talk about it more in detail later. It also seems like a prime subject for bringing in some kind of guest who knows more uh, than I do uh, about this sort of stuff. Now, what I did want to talk to you about In this second episode was the end of the transfer window. The transfer window slammed shut, as it does. Pretty crazy January transfer window in the Premier League. Uh, It's been a week, but I'm not ready to really let it go just yet. Uh, An unusual amount of business was done for a January... And really two big things driving this. One of those things was like the, the fear of relegation and the consequences of relegation. We see Wolves adding players to their squad. We see Leeds signing, uh, signing Jorginho Rutter, Max Werber, and Weston McKinney. We see Nottingham Forest bring in a bunch of guys, as they do. Uh, some interesting stuff on the South Coast, I'd like to flag up. Bournemouth, under a new ownership, just doing things. Uh, signing Antoine Semenyo from Bristol City Dango Uatra from Lorient in Ligue 1 Hamid Traore from Sassuolo who's a tasty player tried to sign Niccolò Sagnolo before that and Ilya Zabarni which is which is a thing he's a 20 year old defender from Dynamo Kiev I'm not going to claim to have seen him a lot but he's very highly rated by people whose opinion I, I, I trust kind of strange to see someone like him go to Bournemouth who will very, very likely play in the championship next season. Uh, must have done a good job convincing him that Bournemouth is a good place for, for him to develop, so that's kind of an interesting deal. But Southampton I'd like to talk about a little bit. Some interesting stuff happening at Southampton. They brought in Camaldine Suleimana uh, from Wren. He's a really interesting player. He's fast, he's skillful, he dribbles a lot. Uh, he often came off the bench uh, for Rennes, uh, but if you break it down into dribbles per 90 minutes on the pitch and adjust for players who have at least had semi-regular game time this season, then he's actually the second most prolific dribbler in Ligue 1, all of Ligue 1, um, ahead of like Neymar, Mbappe and all these guys, uh, just behind Jeremy Ducou, the young, uh, the excellent young Belgian winger. Now, uh, kamaldine is born in Ghana. He came to Europe through the, the Right to Dream Academy in their collaboration with the Danish club named FC Nordsjælland. Now, you may have heard of FC Nordsjælland already as the kind of talent factory. Lots of good young players, already exported a few. You'll see many long reads about them and all their young players in the next couple of years, I expect, if you've not seen them already. And this sort of path is Ghana, right to Dream Academy, Nordsjælland, and then to continental Europe. It's the same pathway as Mohamed Kudus uh, took. Uh, Kudus, who I'm sure you noticed during the World Cup for Ghana, a really, really fun player. If not, you'll have seen him in the Champions League with Ajax. Uh, sort of clips of his technical exploits, they turn up on Twitter fairly regularly because he's such a fun player. Um, and, and Kamaldin uh, Sulemana kind of went the same way, from uh, from yeah you know, Right to Dream Academy to Denmark, and then to Rennes for something like 20 million euros in the summer of 2021. Now, he's been in and out of the team at Rennes, still only 20, but very exciting. The raw material is is certainly there. And this seems to be a very clear strategy by the Southampton owners, Sport Republic, uh, of signing young players who can sort of develop and then inevitably be sold, because that's what happens when you're Southampton. Uh, you'll remember this summer, they brought in Gavin Bazunu, Romeo Lavia, uh, Samuel Edozi and Juan Larios, all from Man City. Uh, they signed Sekou Mara from Bordeaux, Armel Belacotchap from Bochum, and this winter they brought in Kamaldin uh, Sulmana and, and uh, Carlos Alcaraz from Racing in Argentina. So that's eight players, who put together cost something like a hundred million euros, uh, slightly more than that, and they're all twenty and younger. Now that's it. That's a lot of money to spend on potential when you're Southampton. And you are where you are on the table right now, but I don't think it's a surprise that they're going to have a bit of a struggle this season. They've really gambled on, on young players. It could work out. Uh, and we've already seen with with <laughs> with Lavia that he looks terrific, and they could have flipped him already at a huge profit if they wanted to. Bella Kotchap looks great uh, to me, like very exciting young young defender. Um, so we could see a return to what we had a few years ago, and Southampton made a ton of money and had some really good seasons on the back of being really smart in the transfer market. Trouble is, in the short term, they're about to get relegated. Poor old Nathan Jones having a really weird one. uh, Let's just put it that way. And now... They have also added players with more experience, uh, who maybe you can expect a bit more from straight away, like uh, Mislav Orsic, who we've seen for for Croatia and from uh, for Dinamo Zagreb in European competitions. He scored a scored a hat trick against Spurs. He scored the winning goal against West Ham. He's scored against Chelsea. Uh, they've also signed Paul Onuatu, who's 6'7", seven, uh, a very very big striker from from Gank, uh, and uh, so so they kind of given Nathan Jones something to work with. They've signed a very tall, strong striker. Uh, they've. And a, a speedy, tricky guy in 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 Camaldine for uh, the Ghanaian, and, and you have an Orsic a guy who's really fast, as we've seen, who's got an eye for goal. So you have speedy, tricky guys who can who can run, who can who can maybe win some set pieces, and you have Ward Prowse who can put it in a box for a six foot seven striker. You know that could work. So if Nathan Jones can kind of settle down a little bit and sort of dial it down, like he, he seems very highly strung, uh, chippy gentleman. I'm not unfamiliar with that. I've I've gone to a few Luton games when he was there and seen him sort of bouncing up and down on the sideline. He's a very highly strong man, uh, but I think with the with the press conferences needs to needs to tone it down a little bit. Either way, if he can get to work, there are some tools to work with at least, even if the situation uh, looks a little bit dire now all this was going on uh, towards the bottom end of the table. And here I was about to say, meanwhile, near the top, but of course it's much more a case of, meanwhile, right in the middle of the table, Chelsea, uh, spent a ton of money, again. Now, uh, we're a bit behind schedule here, this episode's going long, uh, but I would like to spend some time deciphering Boley Ball. Uh, I've gotten to my main point of the episode uh, almost like 18 minutes in it's not ideal but this is where we are and uh, so far Chelsea have spent like 600 million pounds this season something like that they spent an initial 70 million euros possibly rising to 100 on Mikhailo Mudrik who have played just over 30 games in the Ukrainian top division this is, That that's the thing that's happened and then they spent 120 million euros on Enzo Fernandez, who joined Benfica for, for 10 million uh, last summer now it's easy to make fun of this stuff, right? It, it, it does seem a little bit unhinged. And when it's led by a very inexperienced owner, then I think some degree of skepticism is, is warranted. And on Todd Bowley, again, easy guy to make fun of. And maybe we should make fun of him a little bit. He, he appeared on the SALT conference back in September, which was a, a global thought leadership a networking forum. So, so not just a, not just a club owner, Todd Bowley. He is very much a thought leader. We've got to bear this in mind. And when he was asked, you know, what does he know? What is he bringing as an owner to Chelsea? He was pretty honest. He said, we're not expecting to be the football experts. We're going to put those people in place. It's not different than running any human capital business where it's all about getting the right resources, making them collaborate, getting them organized, thinking about how you have a global business at a local level, which is amazing. I'm sat listening to this and and I obviously don't disagree, but I'm also thinking, wow, you know, decades of rich people from various countries and backgrounds owning football clubs. Just incredible to me that no one's thought of this before. You know, following this sport and this industry for my entire adult life, such as it is, and, and getting to know some people who have been involved in it and seeing some very intelligent and experienced people try to run clubs, some less intelligent maybe, and then you see this guy come in saying, it's no different than running any other human capital business. I just think I'm not convinced it's actually that simple. I don't actually think running a football club is just like running any human capital business. Um, What I've seen many, many times is businessmen who have been very successful in other industries do a terrible job and lose a lot of money trying to run a football club. That I have seen. I've seen a lot of that. So I think it's only human to to look at Todd Bowley and his, uh, let's say, confident uh, approach to this, and you kind of want to fall, want him to fall on his face, right? That pride goes before the fall, etc. It'd be quite a lot of Schadenfreude to go around, I think, if things went wrong for for thought leader Todd Bentley. And also this idea that he seems to have about how the Premier League clubs they're 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 way behind U.S. sports in terms of you know developing the commercial side and monetizing their fans. And it's like, why don't we have an All Star game? And why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? It works in America. If it makes money in America, it must work over here. And the only possible reason as to why it's not done here must be I guess that we're all this sort of backwards inbred simpletons with bad teeth who insist on boiling all our food like I get the sense that that's what what thought leader Todd is thinking here when it has not occurred to this guy that other smart people have owned football clubs on this continent and, and done their best to maximize revenues including some pretty clever American owners by the way who also own teams in US sports and if they haven't done certain things or push for certain things maybe 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 that's because it wouldn't quite work. Sorry, this this got a bit ranty. I do apologize. But but when you have an owner who comes in, uh, no experience, doesn't demonstrate much of an understanding of the sport he invests in uh, and goes, well, this is all pretty easy. And then proceeds to spend like a ton of money on a bunch of players while the team keeps playing not very well your instinct is going to be to make fun of this guy, uh, but, but, but let's take a step back, let's look at it, let's try to be reasonable, uh, and and let's try to make sense of it. I think, firstly, all the stuff about how are they doing this, what about FFP, uh, I think you've all read or heard uh, about how the accounting works by now, right? In, in football, in accounting terms, the cost of a transfer is written off over the course of the contract that's signed, so if you sign a player and you put them on an eight-year deal, then in accounting terms, the cost will be spread over eight years. So the immediate impact on your books from that transfer fee is is less severe, right? We all know this now, I think. And with Chelsea, of course, they've they've done quite well in terms of player trading recently. And of course, when you sell a player from the academy, that has a huge positive impact because they'll have like a book value of, of zero. And and Chelsea have done well producing players that they've been able to sell on, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and this whole thing has been established Additionally, when you're signing younger players, I suspect the contracts, the wages, are probably a little bit lower than some people might assume. So, I'm sure they'll find a way of making it work with with the FFP, and I'll direct you towards guys like Swiss Ramble for for the nitty-gritty details of that. More generally speaking, all this spending, is it crazy? What are they doing? Well... I guess if you're Chelsea and if you're Todd Bowley, you're looking at this long, long, long list of players that you've signed and you hope that you find among them a core of stars that'll be like the backbone of this team for the next what half decade. Right. Because the majority of the players they brought in are young. You can go through some of them. Like Enzo Fernandez is 22. Wesley Fafana is 21. Mudrick, 22. Kukurea, 24. Just about passes as young in football terms, no? is 21. Madreke is 20. Malagusto is 19. Carney Chukumeka is 19. Datro Fafana is 20. Andre Santos is 18. Gabriel Slonina is 18. So logically, not all these players will be a success. Not all of them will develop as you hope. That's not how sports work. Everyone knows that. But it's not unreasonable to look at that 11 players i just named i think it was and say that out of those you'll have four or five who'll become proper top players for you and you've got maybe a couple who'll become useful players for an elite team like that's not super unrealistic to hope for i think you already have mason mount who's great who's 24 you've got reese james is fantastic he's 23 kai Harvard's is is good a little bit frustrating but you know He's a high-level player. He's 23. So you're hoping that you have the basis of a team that can kind of grow together, that can be successful together over the next three, four, five, six years, right? And all of the transfer fees that you've spread the cost of, they might limit you a little bit budget-wise and give you less wiggle room with FFP in the coming years, but you're hoping that the team won't need major surgery then because you have a core of good players. So you might just need to add or subtract one or two here and there. Now, of course, there's risk. Players sometimes turn out to be bad and you can lose some money on them. But I suspect Bowley and the other owners have more of a macro sort of helicopter long-term view on this, that they've bought this asset for £3 billion, uh, that they believe that the Premier League clubs are still undervalued, that the commercial side is underexploited, that the global popularity of the Premier League can be used to make the clubs even more financially successful, and that if the sport continues to grow, then 10, 20 years down the line, the club is going to be worth more than £3 billion. Uh, A lot like, I don't know, FSG bought Liverpool for £300 million. I guess it was 13 years ago, that they've apparently set a price tag of four billion. I mean, I guess if Chelsea can be sold for three billion, then you'd think at least the same would be true for Liverpool at least. Now, I'm not sure the value of Chelsea is going to increase tenfold in 13, 15 years. That in in 2036, I guess, Todd Bowley and the lads, they're going to sell Chelsea for 30 billion? That seems crazy. But if you are Todd Bowley and you believe that the sport will continue to grow and that the value of clubs will continue to rise and that you'll eventually sell it off at a big profit... If you really believe that, then you can afford to, and I guess it makes sense to spend some money along the way to make sure the club stays in the elite segment of the league, even if that means you take a bit of a hit financially in the short term. I mean, that, that's the logic, right? I think that's the big picture view of it. And I can kind of convince myself that there's a certain logic to all of that, that you're doing this big splurge now, hopefully buying the backbone of what will be a successful team for many years during which the sport will continue to grow. And so the value of your asset just kind of goes up and up and the money you're spending now will seem small by by comparison, uh, five, six years down the line. That's the big picture. And as tempting as it is to cast Todd Bowley as this kind of buffoon, I, I, I guess I can buy it. There's a certain logic there. But that's, like I said, that's the big picture. With the more medium and short-term perspective, I find that I have more questions. So in the medium term... Uh, Todd Bowley has spoken about youth development about building a multi-club model uh, about using data Uh, and we can see from the people he's hired uh, remember, human capital, hire the right people, make them collaborate that's, uh, uh, you can see what his inspirations are, the clubs he he admires because he's brought in uh, Paul Winston Lee from Brighton uh, who's going to work as a co-sporting director alongside Lawrence Stewart, formerly of Monaco Uh, they brought in Christopher Vivelle who's worked as head of scouting as Salzburg, and technical director at RB Leipzig. He's been brought in uh, as a technical director. They've also brought in Joe Shields from Southampton uh, as a co-director of recruitment and talent. Now, Shields previously worked at Man City as a head of academy recruitment there, was brought down to Southampton in the summer, and as you remember, Southampton then signed some some good young players from City's academy uh, before he was then uh, approached by Chelsea in October, I think it was. Now, You get a manager and a sporting director from Brighton. You get a guy from the Red Bull group, you get a guy from Monaco, and a guy who's worked at City's academy and and has been part of implementing a sort of youth signing policy at Southampton. That gives you a pretty good idea, I think, of what kind of clubs Todd Bowley is impressed with uh, and what kind of clubs he wants to emulate and and draw inspiration from. I think we all know Brighton have done an amazing job on the recruitment side of things. You know, the fizzy drink empire, Red Bull, have an impressive kind of talent factor and a conveyor belt going from Salzburg to, to Leipzig there. Uh, the, the City's academy, of course, obviously produced some really good players. And of course, th- th- with those guys in place, they then sort of go forth and they sign a bunch of young players in January. We all kind of see what the thinking is, right? Uh, and I should stress, these are, I'm sure these are really, really smart guys who have worked at successful clubs for a reason, done good work there, I'm sure. I, the only thing I'd say is, like, first of all, the multi-club stuff Looks really good on a PowerPoint slide, and you can use words like synergy and collaboration and alignment and all of this. I'm not sure there are that many examples of clubs actually getting a ton of benefit from it outside of the fizzy drink empire. I mean, paradoxically, one good example, in a way, is Chelsea who sent a lot of players to Vitesse in the Dutch league, and quite a few of them picked up some very useful experiences there. Brighton, I guess, Karumitoma is the great case study of how you want this to work, right? They signed him from the Japanese League, sent him on loan to their sister club, Union Saint-Giloise, in Belgium for a year, uh, and get a year of football in Europe at a slightly lower level. I suspect it also helped them get a work permit for him. Uh, And then you bring him in, and you unleash him, and he's really good. I mean, that's the kind of case study that would look very good on a PowerPoint presentation, I think. Now, I think you can achieve this without actually owning uh, the other club, Uh, and just by having a good relationship and a Links with certain clubs around Europe, uh, because that's exactly what Chelsea have done before with Vitesse. They've done a really good job developing uh, youth players like Mason Mount was there, and even if they haven't quite made the first team, everyone, uh, so a lot of them have been sold on at profits, and sort of that's helped build the Chelsea, uh, the Chelsea as as a club. Like the, the much vaunted um, City Football Group uh, that uh, Man City are, are are the mothership of. How many players have actually come through? The, the clubs in, in City Football Group, and actually been useful for Man City. like that's, that's, that's not a very long list. Maybe that'll change in the future, but again, aside from the Salzburg-Leipzig thing, I, I've yet to be convinced that the multi-club is, system is actually just a huge game-changing advantage that'll really transform the way you go about your business. That's one thing. So you look at that and you think, okay, the Chelsea owners, they're looking at Brighton, they're looking at the Red Bull group, and they think, yeah, this is best practice in in football. This is what the the really clever people are are doing and they're getting results. And I think that's true, but only to an extent. Because I think there's a difference between signing players for Brighton and and for RB Salzburg and signing players for Chelsea. They're very, very different objectives. Success for RB Salzburg is... I don't know, signing Pat who gives you a few good years and then you sell him to the Premier League for a big fee. Or or, or Brendan Aronson, same thing. Or Arling Haaland, even, if you will. Uh, and, and you can throw a few million at young players here and there because when you really hit, you get a good return on that. And if you don't really hit, then you can always find someone to pay you some money and you can recoup a good bunch of it, right? Holland is a good example. He went from Molde in Norway to Salzburg. Now, the fee was something like five, six million euros up front, plus some add-ons. And even if he hadn't been amazing, as he is, of course, this is very good, even if he'd just been okay, I'm sure Salzburg could have sold him, like, to FC Copenhagen or something for, for much of that five million a couple of years down the line if it hadn't really worked out. You'll always find somewhere to move them on. So there's not a huge amount of risk there. Now, for Chelsea, success is not settling players on. Success is winning the league and winning the Champions League. So the goal isn't to sign someone you can sell to Leicester at a profit. The, the, the goal is to sign a player who will develop into that tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of global talent that can actually win you trophies. I think that's harder, first of all. And secondly, there's more risk because there are fewer clubs out there that operate in your bracket if you spend like 30 million on Mal or 70 on Mudrik and they don't quite work out it's a lot harder to move them on and recoup that money because not that many clubs have that kind of money to spend so it's a very different way of working I'm not fully convinced that the methods of some of these very very clever very impressive mid-ranking clubs can actually be replicated by the very wealthiest clubs in the world trying to turn Chelsea into Red Bull Brighton upon Thames, not sure that is the way. I'm not entirely sure that wins you the Premier League. I'm not entirely sure it wins you the Champions League. Uh, you're going to use data? Fantastic. So does everyone. Uh, you want a feeder club uh, so you can give meaningful game time to younger players? Great. I mean, most other clubs just loan them out. Seems to work. Um, so I'm not entirely certain buying a club in Portugal will be that much of a game-changer. So I have some uh, questions about the sort of medium-term strategy here, but the thing I'm really uncertain about is the short-term perspective. You know, big-picture vision, okay, maybe. Medium-term strategy, nah, not sure. I mean, they've brought in a lot of smart people to the building, and that's probably not a bad thing, but the short-term thing. Like, they've signed all of these players and and they still don't have a striker? Like, that's kind of weird. Uh, N'Golo Kante, unfortunately, injured a lot of the time, so uh, we don't know uh, what kind of shape he's been when he comes back, so y- you probably should think about replacing him by, like, a really good ball-winning defensive midfielder. Now, you can play Enzo Fernandez as a defensive midfielder, but that seems like a waste. You know, you sign this amazing box-to-box player who's great at getting forward and making runs into the box and, and can score goals and then you use them as a number six because you forgot to sign someone who can do that. that? That's big PSG energy right there in the squad planning, I think. Uh, now, poor old Kai Havertz. It's going to have to keep playing out of position up front because you haven't signed a, a credible forward. I think you can't really ask uh, David Fofana to go straight from the Norwegian League to the Premier League and be a striker. I think it's a really, really big ask for him. Uh, Juan Felix is more of a second striker and a, and a number 10. Uh, so you don't... It's probably going to have to be Havertz. And 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 you've got Mudrik, Raheem Sterling, Christian Pulisic, Hakim and Nuni Madreke all fighting over two spots out wide. That doesn't seem like very good squad planning to me. Uh, I think Ram Potter really has a difficult job on here to, to make sense of it all. They're very unlikely to make the Champions League, almost impossible for them to make the Champions League now, uh, which makes all of those other financial concerns a little bit worse next season. And, and what do you do about Potter? It's, it's, it's one thing saying, this is our guy. We believe in him. We're going to give him time. But you know, these players haven't joined Chelsea to finish ninth or wherever you end up. When you lose games, players lose confidence. They lose confidence in in themselves, in each other, in the manager. And even if you're a really good manager, it becomes really hard to turn that around. And so you, you really need to make the Champions League next season. It's not getting any easier, you know. Man City are Man City, at least for the time being. Arsenal suddenly have this great team they've put together, uh, the top six are eventually becoming the top seven with with the rise of Saudi Newcastle uh, Manchester United looking competent again, I mean Liverpool, okay they're a mess right now, but you'd expect them to be better next season, so it, it's, it's going to be very tricky to get into the Champions League now going forward, and no matter how much clever accounting Chelsea have done, I suspect they need to be in the Champions League fairly regularly for these numbers to make sense and like I said, that's not going to be easy the owners have, have demonstrated an extraordinary willingness to spend big money in the short term but that's also just kind of going to limit their scope for spending in the medium term due to FFP and here's another thing if they struggle to get into the Champions League regularly even if they hit and hit big with some of these younger players they're gonna to want to leave. <laughs> because they not John Chelsea to, to, you know, finish seventh and play in the Europa League. And the idea that Chelsea are saving money by tying them to long term contracts on reasonable terms. Now well, let's say Mudrick has a monster season next year. Let's say he has 15 goals and assists, you know, brilliant things, running rings around everyone. He's gonna want to raise because that's footballers. So no matter how many years he's got left on his deal, he's gonna want more money. So okay. It's not just madness. It's not just chaos. Todd Bowley isn't some kind of goofy lunatic who's gone mad with the company credit card. In the short term, you're banking on Graham Potter to make sense of a pretty lopsided but but talented squad. In the medium term, you're banking on a few of these younger players to really hit it big and, and become world stars and, and be happy to stay and lift the club to where you want to be. And in the long term, you're banking on this whole circus that is football to continue to grow, that you can find new revenue streams, improve the existing one, make more and more money. Now, all of these things can happen. It's definitely possible that all of this happens. And honestly, I worry more about the short term stuff. I think Grand Potter, I think it's going to be really difficult for him. But certainly there's risk here uh it's it, it's it's not easy and there are many many things i feel can go wrong with with bowling ball <laughs> as it's been set out okay way too long this episode has been way too long. I do apologize. God bless you if you're still with me here. Betting part at the end. Terrible weekend for the now relaunched betting column that I do for BetsOn. Um, and now putting those out in English on the BetsOn blog, I pick a weekly treble where BetsOn will boost the odds a bit and I put three singles. I like my thinking is always. The treble, okay, that's going to be hit and miss because that's That's the nature of trebles. Uh, But I should be in the green pretty consistently with the singles. And listen, I will be giving myself credit when I do well, but I'm also not going to hide from it when I do badly, and this was a bad weekend. Uh, One out of three singles landing treble not. Close, uh, United to win and under three and a half goals was fine in that game, but a lot of other things went wrong. I'm mean, going to have to spend some time thinking this week before next weekend's column. But we go again. Betting is a, a marathon, not a sprint. Now I quite like the price for Everton to get a result on Monday against Liverpool. I usually don't put Monday games on the weekend column, so let me just flag it up on the pod instead. Uh, 270 with bets on for Everton or draw double chance, or 2.01 on Everton plus 1.0 on the Asian handicap. So in that case, you know, you win if Everton win or draw, uh, you get a stake return if Liverpool get a one-goal win. I like that bet a lot. Uh, Looking at... What will go into the actual column this week, I'm almost certainly having some kind of bet on Brighton here. Uh, Palace are not in a good place. One win in the last ten in all competitions. No wins in the last six. They have had a tough fixture list. Uh, They've had to play some really good teams. Did manage to hold both Newcastle and Man United. This is true. But Brighton are just on tremendous form. I believe they will triumph in the M23 Derby. Bets on offering a price of 2.10 for a straight Brighton win. I believe that is a price worth taking. That'll be in my betting column for the weekend. Thanks for listening, everyone. Great to be up and running with the Lars Resort after a slightly scuffed launch, a bad launch. Oh. Yeah, the box is back! Yeah, that's, uh, that, that, that's how I feel about the launch, but everything's working now. No feedback on, on the use of the box. Maybe that means you all liked it. Yeah, oh, that, that, that should have been for the Boley thing. Yeah, there we go. Not sure what that is. Anyway, possibly more box work if I remember it next episode. Probably not. G- give me some feedback on the box or any kind of other feedback. All good, I'm listening. See you later.